Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good Morning Nancy, my name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And it's time for a Good Morning Nancy special. Welcome to the worst nightmare of all, reality. Clive Barker. Hey guys, it's our fourth Good Morning Nancy special! Yes! How exciting! I know. So for those of you who don't know, in between seasons, we like to spice things up a bit and do a special episode about a topic or a person whose work we are passionate about. And of course, it always has something to do with horror. This season, we'll be talking about English writer, film director, and visual artist Clive Barker. Now, many of you know him as the author of The Hellbound Heart and the writer-director of the film version Hellraiser. However, you might not know about his life and his other amazing works, so we're going to tell you about that right now. I want to recognize author Douglas E. Winter who wrote the amazing biography that we got most of our references from. Uh, The book is called Clive Barker, The Dark Fantastic. And I suggest you pick up a copy and read it because there is so much more to Barker's story that because of time, we won't be able to cover here. So check it out. It's an amazing read. And I also want to recognize Phil and Sarah Stokes for their work in interviewing Clive Barker over the years and for also documenting every interview Clive has done. All of their interviews are in the show notes and as well as some other references that we used for the show. And a warning before we continue, we are going to be spoiling most of the major plot points from Barker's books and films, so keep that in mind as you listen. Okay, so with that said, let's get the special morning started. Len Barker was an only child born into a family of Irish sailors. In 1943, when he was 18 years old, he immediately enlisted in the Royal Navy to fight in World War II and worked as a telegraphist. However, Len was no ordinary operator. According to Douglas E. Winter, although Len left school at age 14, he was deft mentally and mechanically. His earliest service was devoted to intercepting German radio transmissions. But eventually, Len would be tasked with code-breaking messages to Japan. Throughout his military service during the war, he would live in South Africa, Madagascar, and India, intercepting Japanese wireless signals. When Len returned to Liverpool after the war, he picked up ballroom dancing and served as the master of ceremonies at local soirees. One evening, he caught the sight of a very creative and strong-willed woman named Joan Revel. Joan came from a very different background than Len. Her family was originally from Italy and then mysteriously inherited a large fortune. No one knows where the money came from because, you see, Grace, Joan's grandmother, didn't believe in talking about the past. Joan loved dancing, so she would find herself at Len's forays frequently, but she could never seem to find a man who could dance as well as her. Until Len. It was love at first dance. Well, sort of. They purely started out as dance acquaintances, then slowly became friends, and then romantically involved. 
One year after they started dating, Len and Joan married against both their parents' wishes on April 9, 1949. The first few years of marriage were blissful, but money was incredibly tight. Len worked long, tedious hours for the Harrison Line, a shipping company, but it wasn't enough, so Joan decided to go back to work. Probably not keen with the modern idea of her daughter-in-law having to leave the house to find work, Len's mother suggested they take in house guests to supplement Len's income. Joan agreed, so the Barkers bought a house on Oakdale Road near the famous Penny Lane in Liverpool. Their house guests? The understudies were Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier, who were in town for a show. The guest house would prove to give the couple a steady income for the next few years, and on October 5, 1952, they welcomed their first child, Clive Barker, who was delivered by cesarean section due to severe complications. It was a traumatic delivery. Joan and Clive were both at risk of dying. After the C-section, doctors confirmed that Clive was a healthy baby, but Joan's recovery was painful and slow. She was unable to hold Clive at first due to how weak she was, but Clive expressed in his biography, The Dark Fantastic, that there was this fierceness between him and his mother. The sense that they both would never let each other go once they were able to finally hold each other. It's apparent that Clive had and continues to have very strong memories of being a child in the house on Oakdale Road. He distinctly remembers waking up on early Christmas morning and what his room looked like when he was five years old. He remembered being snowed in during a winter and, burning, and the burning hot summers of Liverpool and watching an eclipse in his backyard. Quote, it was a very unexceptional childhood but that was part of the pleasure. Later in his life, he would continually be asked if his childhood had anything to do with his dark stories, art, and films. The answer? Nope. Quote, I don't feel that my taste was shaped by anything in particular that happened in my childhood. I had imaginary friends, and I liked monsters, and I drew monsters, and so on. But I think a lot of kids like monsters. Unquote. Joan noticed very early on that Clive would talk to and about his quote-unquote friends, so she figured that maybe it was time for him to have a real friend. When Clive was three and a half, his mother gave birth to another boy named Roy on February 24, 1956. Clive was delighted to have a baby brother and helped in any way he could to take care of him. According to Joan, Clive could speak perfectly by the age of two. She concluded that this was because she and her in-laws conversed with Clive in their quote-unquote adult voices and used quote-unquote adult words. According to Douglas E. Winter, Len's mother would sit and talk with Clive for hours, and she enjoyed telling him stories. Joan was also a wonderful storyteller, and thankfully, Clive was a demanding listener. His favorite stories were those by J.M. Barry. Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, and Peter and Wendy, claiming that Peter Pan is the book that he would one day like to be buried with. Clive would never be a fan of the Mary Martin or Sandy Duncan portrayals of Peter Pan on film or on the stage, saying, quote, What is essential about Peter Pan is his masculinity, because he is such a troubled little boy. The things which troubled Peter Pan are not things which would trouble a little girl. He doesn't have a mother. He has this curious mingling of anger and sentimentality. 
He is deeply aggressive and a leader of Little Lost Boys, so the image of this boy being played by not only a girl but a fully grown woman is doubly preposterous. (laughs) The boy's sexuality of Peter Pan is a very important part of who he is. The crowing, literally cock crowing, aggressiveness is so much a part of who he is, so my Peter Pan is modeled after me, unquote. In 1957, just before Clive turned five, he was enrolled at the Dovedale Road School, where he attended until he was 10. Clive's memories of Dovedale are good, but he hated that he was made to take classes on math and science and made to be involved in like organized sports. Even though he was a good student, he much preferred reading, drawing, and especially performing. He always looked forward to performing in the Dovedale Holiday Musicals every summer and Christmas. According to Douglas E. Winter, Clive always performed in these events, practicing hard, acting his heart out. One memorable show, he led the students in a march out of the auditorium as they sang, We're all going on holiday. I don't know if that's really the tune, but that's that's what I'm saying. I enjoyed it. So Clive might have seemed like the life of the party, but it should be noted that he wasn't safe from the local bullies. In his third year at Dovedale, Joan noticed her son had come home with cuts and bruises. It just so happened another schoolboy had beaten him. Apparently, the schoolboy would beat Clive on his way to school and then again on his way home for a long time. When Len Barker finally found out, he told Clive to fight back. The next day, when the schoolboy approached Clive, Clive punched him, and never. And so the schoolboy never bothered him again. Oh dear! However, Clive didn't like the encounter. Confrontation, especially physical confrontation, bothered him immensely. As Clive grew, he became more and more enamored with books and comics. Batman was the first ever American comic book he had purchased, and that was soon followed by Superman, Spider-Man, and the Incredible Hulk. He also began seeking out horror novels after reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. He wasn't very interested in H.P. Lovecraft, but he loved Ray Bradbury, Mary Shelley, and Bram Stoker. His parents, however, were concerned with his literature choices of the grotesque and fantastic. Unbeknownst to them, at eight years old, Clive had discovered his first erotica magazine called Health and Efficiency. Whoa. So this obsession with the strange and unusual carried over into his TV viewing as well. Eventually, his parents had to make a rule that the TV could only be viewed during, quote unquote, family time, when everyone could watch together. This lack of TV helped Clive more than his parents would ever think. By 11 years old, he was creating puppet shows that he would write and direct and perform himself with some help from his brother Roy. Clive wouldn't just put on one show, though. He would put on the same show and perform it almost every day and at very specific times. Much like a professional show, there was a matinee performance as well as an evening performance, and he expected his family to attend. The failing economy and rise in violent crime in Liverpool forced the Barkers to move to a more suburban area known as Mossley Hill. Clive began to withdraw from others and watch and study more horror films in his teenage years. One of them was George Franju's French film, Eyes Without a Face, and of course all of the Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee Hammer horror films. 
Clive also began studying art and had an unsurprising fondness for William Blake, Goya, and Hieronymus Bosch. When his parents felt that he was not getting involved in enough extracurricular activities, they signed him up for Boy Scouts, which didn't last very long. Desperate for their oldest son to fit in and make friends, they finally asked him what he would like to do. Clive didn't know the answer yet, but it would be theater. While studying at Quarry Bank Grammar School, Clive continued to devour books on mythology and paintings. He excelled in literature and geography, but still wasn't able to make friends and was bullied constantly, not only by fellow students, but by teachers as well. His English teacher, Norman Russell, was his saving grace and was able to give Clive hope for his future. He would be the first person to call Clive a writer. I know. Russell encouraged Clive onto the stage, first with speech lessons and competitions, and then with playwriting and performance. According to Douglas E. Winter, the first play, Voodoo, from 1967, was a living horror film written by Clive and friend Phil Rimmer in one hectic weekend. It featured an insane German and a hunchback in scenery constructed entirely out of cardboard boxes. The second play, Inferno, was also created in collaboration with Phil Rimmer. This play was a mixture between Dante's Inferno and a Nazi drama. Oh dear. Clive's third play, Neon Gunboni, from 1968, was an earnest and sobering play about the end of the world, which he promoted throughout the school by posting erotic photos of women with the caption, I am coming to Neon Gunboni. <laughs> oh dear. The photos only lasted less than an hour before they were removed, but they did their job and most of the school showed up to see the play. According to Clive, I felt a surge of confidence in my own abilities after that. Aside from writing plays, Clive also performed in a number of school shows, including The Lark and Spring 1600. Clive finally felt like he had found not only his calling in life, but his people. There's nothing like theater kids. So true. Clive's fourth and final play that he would write in high school was a three-hour epic called The Holly and the Ivy. Apparently, the play was avant-garde and disturbing to say the least. The theme surrounding the play was marriage conceived through the eyes of somebody who was too young to know anything about it, and it ended with a man denying a heterosexual marriage for a homosexual one. Many considered this to be Clive's unofficial coming out moment. He struggled with understanding his sexuality in grammar school, but he didn't let himself get too worried about it, claiming that he was more worried about his art and storytelling abilities. His advice to himself during this time was, well, it'll sort itself out. His parents had already had a feeling that Clive was gay. When he finally came out to them, they told him that they knew and had recognized it early on. Even though they were sorry to hear it because they wanted him to get married and have a family, they knew that if Clive was alright, then being gay was alright, and the family just left it at that. In Clive's senior year at Quarry Bank, Liverpool native and horror fiction writer Ramsey Campbell, who wrote The Doll Who Ate His Mother, was invited to the school to talk about his career in writing horror. Campbell was only in his early 20s, so he was a relatable writer for Clive to get to know. According to Douglas E. Winter, he spoke about horror film and fiction for the first half hour, and when students joined in, Clive had more to say than anyone else. With a new sense of confidence in his love for horror and writing, Clive was ready to graduate and face the world. 
After Clive left Quarry Bank, his next step in life was clear. Attend Liverpool College of Arts. However, his parents had different ideas. According to Clive's brother, Roy, quote, My dad's a practical man, and having an arty farty son... <laughs> Oh, to no. use a phrase he would have used at the time, he didn't see him as a son who was going to do so well. And Clive was clearly of the opinion that he didn't care whether he made it or not. The fact was, this was what he wanted to do. Eventually, Clive felt that his parents deserved to be met halfway. He attended the University of Liverpool, first to study philosophy and then English literature. His teacher, Norman Russell, expressed how much he wished Clive had attended Oxford, while Clive later regretted not attending art school. University life was hard, and Clive claimed to not be a very good scholar. Friend and actor Doug Bradley, who would later play Pinhead in Hellraiser, also attended the University of Liverpool, but dropped out due to pressure. Clive felt like dropping out as well, but held on for the sake of his parents, especially his father, Len, who he was having trouble connecting with as of late. But while at university, Clive spent his free time creating short stories and short films and drawings. He also found escape by joining the university's theater club, Hydra. Finally, in 1974, Clive graduated from the University of Liverpool with a BA with high honors in English literature saying he's not a scholar because he's such a smarty pants get out of here (laughs) (laughs) he skipped the graduation ceremony and jumped right into the real world as a creative and gay man yes after graduation clive met mathematician john gregson at a liverpool gay bar called sadie's supposedly this was clive's first time at a gay bar In 1975, Clive lived in a community with his other artists and theater friends, including Doug Bradley, as well as a St. Bernard and a monitor lizard that lived in the heating duct. Oh my god! The house that they all lived in, they called the Ponderosa or the Ranch. You would think that this lifestyle was right up Clive's alley, but it turns out that Clive was suffering from a deep and terrible depression. Every theatrical project that Clive tried to produce at this time was a failure, so he turned to short films again, but those too were not working out. It wouldn't be until a year later in 1976 that Clive would be approached by Doug Bradley and said that we should start theater again. At first, you don't succeed. Try, try again, I guess. (laughs) Later that year, Clive successfully produced his play, A Clown's Sodom? Oh, dear. It was his first breakthrough show outside of school. The play was without dialogue and instead was written in stage directions and scene descriptions. I'm fascinated. (laughs) The play did well, but Clive was itching to produce shows in larger theaters. And within a year, the community at the Ponderosa was beginning to fall apart as actors and artists started to venture off on their own. This was a sign that it was time for Clive to leave as well. This time to London Town. In 1978, Clive and his boyfriend John moved in together in a North London flat in a section of town that had a reputation for inspiring horror fiction. Oh my, I'd like to know what that looks like. Well, (laughs) it would not only be where Clive would eventually write his books of blood short stories, but it was where Peter Straub wrote his first breakthrough novel, Ghost Story, and where Stephen King wrote his short story, Crouch End. 
But in the late 1970s, Clive was far from stardom, and during this time, he would try to support his writing and art career by becoming a sex worker and S&M illustrator for gay magazines on the side. It was not the best of times, according to Clive. But according to Douglas E. Winter, over the next few years, Clive and some of his theater friends from Liverpool would evolve into a full-fledged professional acting troupe known as the Dog Company. London brought them a new sense of purpose and an attitude and ambition that were increasingly professional, unquote. With the Dog Company, Clive would write and perform in multiple plays, including Night Lives, The Magician, Dog, the Comedy of Comedies, and The History of the Devil. But by the end of 1980, Clive decided to hang his acting hat and devote his time to writing and directing shows, and for the first time ever, the Dog Company auditioned actors outside of the community. This was a blow to some of the members, but Clive felt that this was the only way for the company to grow. Well, Clive would be right, and the company would be asked to perform their original plays all around Europe. By 1982, Clive, who's still in his 20s, was already considered a master playwright and had written and directed three more shows, Paradise Street, Frankenstein and Love, and The Secret Life of Cartoons. The Dog Company would disband in 1982, but that didn't stop Clive from writing three more plays in a year. Crazy Face and Subtle Bodies in 1982, and Colossus in 1983. But Colossus would be Clive's last stage play to date because he had secretly been hard at work on the ace up his sleeve, his short stories that would eventually make up Clive Barker's Books of Blood. Yeah. Yeah. According to Douglas E. Winter, Clive's timing was impeccable. In the 1980s, horror briefly supplanted science fiction as the last great preserves of the short story, producing a renaissance of the series anthology and an unprecedented number of single-author story collections. By the end of 1983, Clive's 600-page manuscript was ready to be sent to the publishers and wasn't long before it was picked up by the publishing company Sphere. Clive Barker was unknown in the writing world during this time, so Books of Blood was to be titled Sphere Books of Blood, instead of having Clive's name in the front and center. Sphere also wanted to release the book in three volumes rather than one giant and more expensive book. They were having a hard time taking a risk with a new author. So, Clive contacted the only living horror writer he knew, Ramsey Campbell. Campbell, who Clive thought would send him friendly advice, ended up writing to the publisher instead. This is some of what he wrote. Quote, I think Clive Barker is the most important writer of the horror fiction scene since Peter Straub. He's the first writer to write horror in Technicolor. I think he is, in the best sense, the most deeply shocking writer now working in the field. Unquote. Although the novel would still be split into three volumes, Sphere took the dramatic leap of adding Clive's name to the title and then asked Campbell if he would write an introduction to the first volume of Books of Blood. Of course, the first volume would be a massive hit critically and commercially. According to Douglas E. Winter, quote, Horror, like punk and new wave music and art, was a means of casting off the safe 70s shroud of disco, mindless sitcoms, and the wishful science fiction of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. 
Fear was no longer an aesthetic, but big business, unquote. Books of Blood, Volumes 1 through 3, reshaped the way the world read horror, with such unforgettable short stories as Midnight Meat Train, Rawhead Rex, Sex, Death, and Starshine, Son of Celluloid, and Dread, it's no wonder Stephen King is quoted as saying, I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. After the success of Books of Blood, Barbara Boot of Sphere Publishing approached Clive in her soft-spoken but direct voice and told him, Now, do something sensible and write a novel. Do yourself a favor and write something we can really sell. Oh! (laughs) Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Clive began writing a 10-page synopsis of an adventure novel he was thinking of writing, but his publishers encouraged him to leave that story on the back burner for a while and come up with something else. Look, lady, I'm trying to write you a novel. I know, jeez. <laughs> Their justification was that Clive had already established himself as a horror writer, and it wouldn't be very profitable if he changed genres so quickly into his career. Oh, I understand that. And so Clive began work on a Faustian tale instead, and in 1985, Sphere published Clive's first novel, The Damnation Game. Mm. The story revolves around the character Marty Strauss, a gambling addict recently released from prison. Marty is hired to be the personal bodyguard of one of the wealthiest men in the world, Joseph Whitehead. Marty soon gets caught up in a series of strange events involving Whitehead, his daughter Carries, and a demonic man named Mamulian. Well. With whom Whitehead made a Faustian bargain. Marty must now save Whitehead's daughter from becoming another player in her father's damnation game. Although this was Clive's first attempt at writing a novel, he seemed to have no issues transitioning, saying that he treats 800-page novels just like he would treat individual short stories. You have to be an economical writer and fit as much information in as you can into the smallest amount of space. Well, But the first draft of the Damnation game was not what Sphere had wanted, and Clive was asked to rewrite the book again. This time, the publishers thought it was ready. Good. (laughs) But the hardcover of the Damnation game would undersell compared to the three volumes of Books of Blood, but it did do well on paperback. Now, the Damnation game is considered a profound debut novel and is the most treasured among Barker fans and critics alike. But according to Barker, many years later, he felt less passionate about his debut. I thought that it was a very direct novel. Now I read it again, and it's not so direct, he says. It's rather disgusting, bleak, but it doesn't move as fast as I thought it did when I was writing it. I thought I was writing a real page turner, and I don't think I was. (laughs) Even after the Damnation Game was published, Books of Blood continued to be Barker's fame maker, winning the British Fantasy Award and World Fantasy Award in the fall of 1985. Writing on the continued success of Volumes 1 through 3, Barker published Books of Blood volumes four through six as well. Clive was about to set foot into a new creative world. This time, it would be feature films, and director George Pavlou would become interested in turning Clive's short story Rawhead Rex into a horror film. 
However, neither one of them could believe that producing the film would be a horror story in itself. Oh, boy. I love Rawhead Rex. It's ridiculous. Okay, here we go. The production company Green Man greenlit the film in November of 1985, while production in Ireland began in January of 1986. So before we talk about what happened on the set of Rawhead Rex, (laughs) let's review Clive's original story from Books of Blood. Here's a plot excerpt from Wikipedia. An ancient, malevolent monster, magically imprisoned underground, is accidentally awakened in a village in Kent. Rawhead is a nine-foot humanoid with a huge toothed head, and he goes on a rampage, killing and eating several townsfolk. He corrupts the local verger, who surrenders to the violent, depraved impulses that Rawhead represents, and who helps the monster slay the vicar, Coot. Rawhead sets the village alight and is eventually overcome by Ron, the father of one of Rawhead's victims, who uses a talisman to stall the beast until he is overrun by a mob of enraged villagers. The talisman depicts a pregnant woman, basically Venus, Rawhead's antithesis, and the only thing he fears. Oh, dear. Yeah, the story is actually quite good and very scary. And there is some intense girl power in it. The fact that the rural townsfolk had been unknowingly praying to the Venus in their church because the the talisman is actually in a statue of St. Peter. Oh! And yeah, so like these people in this town have been bowing to like a pagan goddess instead of a Catholic saint. Yeah. There's so many layers. Yes! It's so good. And, like, the fact that Rawhead Rex, who is the embodiment of destructive masculinity, fears the life-giving pregnant femininity. So, the plot is basically the same in the film, which makes sense since Clive also wrote the screenplay. However, the film is incredibly laughable. Oh, my God. And the symbolic struggle of masculine and feminine is greatly downplayed. It's so bad. The special effects are worse than a B-movie from the 50s, and the acting is horrendous. The actor who played Rawhead wasn't even an actor, but a very tall local farmer who had never even watched TV and didn't know the first thing about acting. The film also lacked the shocking violence from the original story and script. The horror and sci-fi magazine Cinema Fantastique gave the film a negative review criticizing criticizing the design of the title monster as being more laughable than frightening and the film's dull finale. Barker, who was greatly disappointed in the film, would think twice before letting someone else take control of his original stories. Oh dear. After nearly a decade together, Clive and John Gregson's relationship was at an end. John, who was once Catholic, began feeling guilty about his sexuality after his mother found out. He seemed to blame this all on Clive, who was open about his sexuality in interviews. Living a public life as a gay man was hard for John, and he seemed to hate how comfortable and happy Clive was with his newfound celebrity and financial independence. It was during the last few months of their relationship that John began to abuse Clive before he finally left him and met a man named David Dodds. Dodds would first become Clive's assistant, but soon the two were new lovers. In this transitional state, Clive would create another Faustian text. This time, it would be a sad love story. 
Yes, a love story. The novella, The Hellbound Heart. It was first published in November 1986 by Dark Harvest in the third volume of their Night Visions anthology series. Clive would write and direct the film Hellraiser just a year later in 1987. After the success of Hellraiser, Hellbound was re-released as a standalone title by HarperCollins in 1988, along with an audiobook recorded by Clive Barker and published by Simon & Schuster Audio Works. According to Douglas E. Winter, quote, Despite its brevity, The Hellbound Heart is a complex novel that melds dissod with grotesque and gothic imagery in an insistently domestic drama, unquote. It's a story about failed marriages, three to be exact, and how sexual desire just isn't enough to keep people together. It's a common misconception that Clive had a film version in mind while writing Hellbound, but after it was finished, he did think that it would make an excellent low-budget film. We'd like to get more into the production of Hellraiser, but we're planning on dedicating an entire full-length episode later in this season, so when it premieres, please have a listen. We will say that this was Clive's directorial debut, which is pretty amazing. And Clive is quoted as saying, I'm glad that you only have to do one first picture. Released almost at the exact time Hellraiser was released, Clive's most autobiographical novel, Weave World, was published. According to Douglas E. Winter, quote, Weave World sought to shift Clive's dialogue with readers away from the expected and the horrific, and into the realm of the fantastic, unquote. Weave World is about a magical world that is hidden inside a tapestry known as the Fugue to safeguard it from both inquisitive humans and hostile supernatural foes. Two people, Cal and Susanna, become embroiled in the fate of the Fugue, attempting to save it from those who seek to destroy it. Emma Colada, an exiled an extremely powerful sorceress bent on revenge. Shadwell, a human salesman with limitless ambition, and Hobart, a conscientious policeman. Clive was determined to write something other than horror and felt that it was time to pay homage to the classic Stranger in a Strange Land fantasies like Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland. The discovery of a magical world by ordinary people who are changed forever after. Upon its release, Weave World received mixed reviews in both the UK and the USA. This could be attributed to HarperCollins mislabeling the book as quote-unquote horror fiction rather than quote-unquote dark fantasy. It seemed Clive was still a slave to the horror genre. Clive is quoted saying, I do not consider myself a horror writer any more than I consider myself a fantasy writer or a science fiction writer. I am a writer who works in my imagination. David Dodds, Clive's assistant turned boyfriend, and friend Mary Roscoe remember Clive always working after the release of Weave World. He would host parties and get-togethers with friends at his new house and be drinking and smoking with everyone, but he would also be creating. Even the next morning, everyone would wake up with hangovers, but Clyde would be at his desk writing a great new novel. This one would be the dark adventure novel he tried to get published after Books of Blood. It was called Cabal. So Douglas E. Winter calls Cabal a hymn to the monstrous. And I love that. Yes. It's a tale that asks the classic question, what makes a monster and what makes a man? <laughs> the mythic beings that live in the underworld, the nightbreed, look grotesque and scary. 
but it's the men, the serial killers, who live above ground who are the real monsters. Specifically, the story follows a normal man named Boone, who is seeing a psychiatrist named Decker for an unspecified mental disorder. Turns out, Decker is trying to pin a bunch of murders he committed on Boone. When Boone discovers Decker's plot, he is shot by Decker in a cemetery. Before Boone dies, he is bitten by one of the Nightbreed who lives in a secret underground city called Midian. Turns out, Boone is the Nightbreed messiah, Cabal, who is destined to save the occupants of Midian from the humans above ground. Eventually, Decker is killed, Midian is destroyed, and Lori, Boone's girlfriend, is turned into one of the Nightbreed too so that they can be together forever. The story ends with Boone and Lori leaving the cemetery with the rest of the Nightbreed in search of a new home. The ending is bittersweet, even though the monsters are forever, so are their persecutors. Men like Decker will always exist, and they will always fly under the radar, while the ones who are quote-unquote different will never not be noticed in the daylight. Cabal did well financially and critically thanks to Barker's recent success with the film Hellraiser, so he jumped right back to work with another novel, The Great and Secret Show, which would be his first novel in a trilogy that he would call The Art. The Art would be Clive's self-proclaimed Lord of the Rings trilogy and would be his first creative adventure into the USA. Barker always knew that he would someday make the big move to the States, uh, and The Great and Secret Show was his first book to take place there. It seemed like Clive was trying to write his travels into existence. The novel is about the conflict between two highly evolved men, Randolph Jaffe and Richard Fletcher, over the mystical dream sea called Quiddity. Jaffe hopes to tap into Quiddity's power, and while Fletcher wants to prevent it from being tainted. The conflict between the two men spills into the real world in a decades-long feud, distorting reality and affecting the entire human race. Clive has stated in interviews that this was the hardest book for him to write, and that Secret Show is a Jungian horror novel. Barker notes, quote, What I am striving for constantly is the fantastical metaphor for the complexity of how we experience the world, unquote. Just as Barker was turning in his final manuscript for Secret Show, he was getting ready to write and direct Cabal for the big screen. This would be the infamously disappointing Nightbreed. Much like Rawhead Rex, Nightbreed would suffer due to the producers interfering with Clive's original vision. By the 1990s, horror fiction and film was taking a turn for the worse. It was becoming safe and dumbed down. Clive hoped to change the tide with Nightbreed, and even though he knew that films were more about making money than art, he trusted the audience to understand and accept the story of forgiveness, redemption, men, and monsters. But his creative vision was corrupted not during filming, but afterwards in the editing room. Oh, that's so sad. 20th Century Fox fumed when Barker tried to explain to them that Nightbreed was not a horror film, but a fantasy adventure, and that the ugly monsters were actually the good guys. The film was re-edited countless times, and according to Douglas E. Winter, there were... There are over 17 missing scenes from the final cut. Upon the film's release, 20th Century Fox labeled Nightbreed not only as a horror film 
but a slasher film at that. Now, Clive was the one who was fuming, and he now considers Nightbreed to be his bastard child. Oh, no. It's no surprise that Clive lost himself in his work after Nightbreed. His large fantasy novel, Imagica, was published just one year after the film premiered in theaters. The inspiration and many of the ideas for Imagica came to Clive Barker in his dreams. He worked at an intense pace to complete the novel, completing the first draft in 14 months, writing 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Imagica, 824 pages at its first printing in 1991, chronicles the events surrounding the reconciliation of Earth, called the Fifth Dominion, with the other four dominions known as Imagica, parallel worlds unknown to all but a select few of the Earth's inhabitants. Great magic users, called maestros, have attempted through the ages to reconcile the Earth with the remaining Imagica, including Christ. All previous attempts failed. The most recent resulted in the horrific death or madness of those involved. The novel also covers themes such as God, sex, love, gender, and death. The central dilemma of Imagica is the nature and means of creation, and thus salvation. Upon its release, many critics lovingly compared Imagica to Stephen King's 1977 novel, The Stand. Indeed, Imagica is about the end of the world, the true meaning of the apocalypse, the death of creation. It makes sense that this grandiose novel would be born from Clive's frustrations with Nightbreed, but unfortunately, Imagica's great ambition is one of its downfalls. Many consider the book to be too long and weighed down by descriptions and side plots. However, Clive has claimed that this is his favorite book he has written. Imagica would be Clive's last book he would write in England. In May of 1991, Clive and David Dodds broke up but remained friends. Dodds continued his work as Clive's assistant, and Clive became romantically involved with a friend named Malcolm Smith who lived in California. Clive and Dodds moved in with Malcolm in a house Clive bought in Beverly Hills. According to Douglas E. Winter, although Clive had departed England, his next endeavor, an illustrated novel, would return him to his childhood. The Thief of Always brought a new legitimacy to Barker's literary journey and another new audience, the world of art. It also brought him a new editor and advocate, Jane Johnson. The Thief of Always follows a young boy named Harvey who is spirited away to Mr. Hood's Holiday House, which has stood for a thousand years, welcoming countless children into its embrace. Playing as a sort of anti-Neverland, the Holiday House is a place of childhood everlasting, with endless miracles, treats, vacations, and play. But Harvey soon becomes bored and decides, and decides to leave the Holiday House, only to discover that 31 years have passed in the real world. He hasn't aged a day, but his parents are now old and frail. Harvey must now find a way to turn back time and take back his life from the thief of always. The book is clearly written as a fable for children, but Clive wanted to make sure adults could read it as well. We can all relate to happiness and fun having a weighty cost, even as adults. Clive is quoted saying, quote, If we embrace Neverland too strongly, we are forever sucking our thumbs, but if we die without knowing Neverland, we've lost our power to dream, unquote. It seems significant that The Thief of Always was published as Clive reached his 40th birthday. 
During the time of the thief's release, Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden, was turned into a horror film entitled Candyman by English director Bernard Rose. Clive was asked to write the screenplay. If you'd like to hear more about The Forbidden and Candyman, listen to our full-length episode about it. The link is in our show notes. The Thief of Always sparked interest in Clive's artwork, and so his first one-man exhibition, Clive Barker Paintings and Drawings, 1973-1993, to opened on March 19, 1993 at the Bess Cutler Gallery in Soho, New York City. The exhibition was so popular that a second exhibition was shown starting in October of that same year. However, Clive was wary about the art world from the start. He is quoted as saying, quote, I'm deeply suspicious and remain deeply suspicious of the art world. I think it's a phony world, unquote. <laughs> That's sort of relatable content. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By the time The Thief of Always was released, Clive Barker was a genre all unto himself, and he began his second novel in the art trilogy, Everville. Everville, published in 1994, tells the story of a small town of the same name, from its creation to its transformation over the years. Several characters populate the book, some from our world and others from Quiddity, the vast universe hinted at in the first book of the series, The Great and Secret Show. Everville is a book about the mystery of life when it is shrouded in shadow. What keeps us going when life's juggernauts pound us into the ground? It's not so much about how to stop the darkness in the world, but how to live with it and continue onward. Even with the failure that was his second film, Nightbreed, this didn't stop Barker from bringing another one of his stories to life to the big screen. Based on his short story, The Last Illusion, from Books of Blood, Lord of Illusions is about a private eye named Harry D'Amour, who meets with a new client named Dorothea about a religious cult that has been targeting her and her husband, famed magician Philip Swan. Harry learns that this cult has been experimenting with reincarnation and that the remaining cult members have reanimated their old religious leader, Nix. Now, Harry must protect Dorothea from becoming a victim of Nix, discovering that Nix has had evil plans for Dorothea since she was a child. Oh, according to Douglas E. Winter, because United Artists was anxious to position itself in the marketplace with product, the film was rushed into production on a grueling schedule with nearly three months of principal photography commencing July 26, 1994 for a release date of February 17th, 1995. Whoa. That is insane. I mean, it can be done, but it's insane. That insane. is insane. <laughs> I would lose my mind. Yes. Barker finished the film on time. <laughs> Surprisingly. However, he ran into some trouble with the good old MPAA. Ugh. They branded the film with an NC-17 rating due to the horrific violence. <laughs> wow. They asked for one particular scene to be cut, saying that the blood was too red. What? What? However, this scene was vital to the story. <laughs> so Barker cleverly turned down the color of the blood, and apparently that was all the MPAA needed to be satisfied. The film got an R rating. So you make it more realistic, and they're like, okay, 
<laughs> you mean make it less realistic? Well, I don't know. they oh. did that for the It trailer. When the blood spurts out of the sink in the trailer, you can see it's like really dark. See, I feel like it's more realistic if it's dark, but mm, that's mm. just me. Okay. <laughs> well, so after United Artists screened the film to a test audience, their minor feedback about the film being too long scared them. And they wanted to re-edit and cut the film. What? Oh my god. Can you imagine? There's like a room full of theater people and only like two are like, oh, that was too long. And they were like, oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. The film was due in less than a month. There was no way they were going to release it on time. <laughs> Clive argued that two hours was a perfectly fine runtime for a film, and that if the studio wanted to re-edit the film, they would have to expect a later release date. That didn't seem to bother United Artists, who felt that releasing the film in May at the start of the summer blockbuster season would be great. Clive, however, knew his film better than that. Finally, United Artists settled on a late summer date of August 25th, 1995. Nice. So from February to May until August. Oh my God. According to Douglas E. Winter, the film opened well with more than $5 million in the box office receipts on its first weekend, but it stalled in the face of heavy competition and mixed reviews, many of which focused on the absence of the narrative that, unbeknownst to critics, padded the cutting room floor. Ah. However, Lord of Illusions still did better than Nightbreed, and Clive finally felt the stress and baggage lift from his shoulders. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. <laughs> so guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Although the AIDS epidemic in the USA started in June of 1981, Clive's family was hit hard by it in 1995 when his cousin Mark died from complications resulting from AIDS. On the death of his cousin, Clive is quoted as saying, a human being is an unrepeatable experience. Aww. This death in the family inspired Clive to write his next novel, Sacrament, which was published the following year. Clive felt that it was important to tell a story based on his cousin and other gay men whose lives have been cut short. Sacrament follows the story of Will Rabjohns, a wildlife photographer obsessed with documenting beautiful species of animals that are on the verge of extinction. Will also happens to be a gay man living during the AIDS epidemic. 
His life is filled with goodbyes, not just from the animals he documents, but from his friends and lovers who are dying off. It's an amazing metaphor. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Douglas E. Winter points out that this was the first time Clive had written about a gay protagonist and that Will's gayness is essential to the plot. It's also worth mentioning that Clive wanted to be as realistic as possible when writing about gay relationships, that they can be just as complicated and troubled as straight relationships. Clive felt that this was key to help normalize homosexual relationships, firmly arguing against gender roles and gay stereotypes. Mm -hmm. The book ends on a hopeful note. Will decides not to wait around for death to consume him, but to continue his work and to move freely throughout the world for the rest of his life. On the ending to Sacrament and the LGBTQ community, Clive has said, quote, We are not going anywhere because we don't come from anywhere. We're spontaneous events. We just appear in the middle of families and will keep appearing. Even if the plague killed every homosexual on the planet, it wouldn't be an extinction because there's queer babies being born every minute. It's like magic, you know? That's exactly what it is. It's magic. Oh my god. I know, I love that. So, Clive and his boyfriend Malcolm had been working on a lot of creative collaboration since first moving in with each other. Most of their collabs involved story concepts and pitches for video games and films. However, Malcolm was desiring to become more independent, feeling like his producing and acting career was only flourishing because Clive was his famous boyfriend. He was restless, and he wasn't sure what he wanted in life. Clive noticed Malcolm becoming more and more distant until finally their relationship had just run its course. Malcolm left California for Portland. Aww. According to Clive, the relationship did not end well. He stated, quote, We never speak, and I have no desire to speak to him. I wish him well, because there was a big heart in there, somewhere. <laughs> Poor Clive. With another failed relationship behind him, Clive fell into a deep despair. He suffered from anhedonia, which is a component of severe depression, meaning that he had the inability to experience even the slightest bit of pleasure in things. He frequently called his mother, father, and brother for advice. They were all worried about him. He was so far away from them now, and he was so famous, but fame and money and California sunshine literally mean nothing if you're alone and can't share it with anyone. Luckily, Clive would remember that he was not alone. David Dodds, who went from assistant to lover to back to assistant again, was now Clive's best friend, and he helped him live through his lowest point. Clive's brother Roy said, quote, as long as David's around, Clive will be okay. Oh, that's so sweet. David insisted on Clive seeing a psychiatrist, which he did, and soon he was on antidepressants. A few months later, Clive sent Douglas E. Winter a letter and manuscript from the Hawaiian Islands. He had been there healing from his depression and writing his next novel, Chiliad, A Meditation. Chiliad is a two-part novel. Part one, Man in Sin, describes the journey of a man called Shank, who seeks to avenge the brutal murder of his partner, Agnes. Part two, A Moment at the River's Heart, is about a husband who sets out to find the killer of his wife. The stories sound oddly similar, right? 
that's because they are. The only difference is that they take place a thousand years apart. Whoa. Some things never change, I guess. With a new novel, Hawaiian Vacation, Meds, and a lot of painting under his belt, Clive was back in California and feeling like his old self again. Hmm, sounds like what I need. (laughs) On Easter Sunday, he made his way to the Hollywood nightclub, The Fault Line. It was there that he rudely stole a parking space from a photographer named David Armstrong. In David's words, quote, I went up to him and said, excuse me, you stole my parking space. You saw me waiting there. And he turns around and I said, but that's okay because, oh, he was cute, unquote. (laughs) Inside the nightclub, the men began to talk. And after two hours, David finally asked, what's your name? When Clive told him, he was shocked. Clive Barker isn't gay, is he? Turns out, David knew who Clive was, but had never read any of his books or watched any of his films. He did know that he was heavily involved in the world of horror and couldn't believe that this smart gentleman was the creator of Pinhead. (laughs) The two immediately started dating, and David, who had recently come out, finally felt comfortable in his sexuality. He said, quote, Clive made me proud to be a gay man and a gay artist. He made me proud of who I was, unquote. About two years into his and David's relationship, Clive published his next novel, Galilee, in 1998. According to the Goodreads plot summary, rich and powerful, the Geary dynasty has reigned over American society for decades, but it is a family with dark, terrible secrets. For the Geary's are a family at war. Their adversaries are the Barbarossas, a clan whose timeless origins lie in myth, whose godlike influence is felt in intense, sensual exchanges of flesh and soul. Now their battle is about to escalate. When Galilee, prodigal son of the Barbarossa clan, meets Rachel, the young bride of the Geary's own scion, Mitchell, they fall in love, consumed by a passion that unleashes long-simmering hatred. Old insanities arise, old adulteries are in uncovered, and a seemingly invincible family will begin to wither, exposing its unholy roots. It's clear that this book is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but in all actuality, it's a story about Clive and David's love for one another. Clive was experiencing, for the first time in his life, a secure, joyful, and fulfilling relationship. Just like Weave World was about Clive's dream planet, Galilee was Clive's dream partner, and he didn't have to dream about him any longer. Romeo and Juliet ends in tragedy, but Galilee has a very happy ending. Just before Galilee was published, Clive and David had a private wedding ceremony, only inviting a few family and friends to help celebrate. Although it would be another 10 years before same-sex marriage was legalized in California, Clive and David did not care. David is quoted as saying, quote, We did it before God, and that's all that matters, unquote. David, who had a daughter named Nicole from his previous marriage, tried to explain his marriage to Clive to her, thinking that at 10, she might not understand. But Nicole was wise beyond her years. She approached Clive afterwards and said, First of all, welcome to the family, and second thing, I am happy for the both of you. As she left the room, Clive became teary-eyed. Those tears soon turned to laughter when Nicole came back and asked him if she could have an iguana. (laughs) 
Hey, new dad. Can I have an iguana? Hey. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> In early 1998, Clive was asked by Universal Studios to create a special Halloween maze for their Hollywood theme park. The maze was called Clive Barker's Freaks. The maze was such a huge hit that he was asked to design another maze the next year. That one was called Clive Barker's Hell. (laughs) The late 90s and early 2000s would be smooth sailing years, so to speak. Clive was flourishing in his new marriage to David, and he produced one of the most critically acclaimed films of 1998, the semi-biographical film about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein director, James Whale. The film is called Gods and Monsters, and it stars Ian McKellen in the title role of Aging James Whale. It seems fit for Clive to have produced the film. Not only could he relate to Whale creatively, but personally. In case you haven't listened to our Frankenstein episode, Whale, like Clive, was an openly gay director in Hollywood. It had been 20 years since Clive had begun his writing career, 15 since publishing Books of Blood, and 12 since the premiere of Hellraiser. On Halloween night, Clive found his way to a costume party in West Hollywood. While there, he saw a man dressed as the lead Cenobite Pinhead. Giddy and a little drunk, Clive walked over to the unsuspecting patron and introduced himself. I created you, he told Pinhead. Fuck off! The party goer replied. <laughs> well, geez, any one of us might have been offended by that jerk, but not Clive. All of his dreams had come true in that moment. He was a living, breathing Dr. Frankenstein, and Pinhead was his monster. Yes. If the public didn't know Clive Barker by face or name, it didn't matter. They knew his creations. After all these years, he was finally now realizing the effect his work had on people. He began to wonder if that was why he had become more and more uncomfortable and anxious as he grew older. The pressure to inspire young writers, directors, and artists just like him was a lot to handle, but it was something that he always seemed to handle with grace. According to Douglas E. Winter, In a worthy summation of a 20-year career as a professional writer for the stage, books, and screen, The Essential Clive Barker was published, and it presented excerpts from Barker's writing in 13 different themes. In April 1999, Clive's father passed away at a hospital in Liverpool. Len Barker had been diagnosed with leukemia three years prior. Luckily, Len's entire family was able to be by his side when he passed, including his new son-in-law, David Armstrong. Len and Clive seemed to clash their entire lives, and Clive never truly knew how his father felt about his sexuality. But when David walked through the hospital room door, Len, who could only speak a handful of words, whispered gently, Welcome, David. And Clive knew that his father would pass with no hard feelings towards him. Isn't that sweet? Oh, so sad. But very sweet. Len passed peacefully, and Clive is quoted as saying, There were noisy gulls swooping on the wind outside. My father loved the sea. I mentioned to my brother that maybe he was with them now. Unquote. In 2001, Clive published Cold Heart Canyon. Dedicated to his husband, David, Cold Heart Canyon was supposed to be a short novella, but the novel grew and grew. 
Once the fantasy started flowing, Clive didn't want to leave it. According to Goodreads.com, film's most popular action hero needs a place to heal after his surgery has gone terribly wrong. His fiercely loyal agent finds him just such a place in a luxurious forgotten mansion high in the Hollywood Hills. But the original owner of the mansion was a beautiful woman devoted to pleasure at any cost. Yeah, and the terrible legacy of her deeds has not died yet. There are ghosts and monsters haunting Cold Heart Canyon, where nothing is forbidden. In Clive's own words, quote, The book is about what dreams you have as an artist, and how very seldom you see those dreams realized. Still feeling the sting of his father's passing, Clive needed to paint again. He envisioned another epic, a series of illustrated novels aimed at young adults, entitled The Aberat Quintet. The first novel... Aberat, published in 2002, follows a young woman named Candy who lives in the most boring place in the world, Chickentown, USA. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> One day, Candy is swept out of our world by a giant wave, and she soon finds herself in another place entirely, the Aberat. Candy has a place in this extraordinary world. She has been brought here to help save the Aberat from the dark forces that are stirring at its core. So Douglas E. Winter's biography of Barker ends there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the rest of this episode is information that we found from interviews with Barker and some online news sources. So please forgive us for this last bit being less in-depth. Yes. The last 20 years. <laughs> so in an interview with Phil and Sarah Stokes on July 22nd, 2003, Clive mentions how he had finished the manuscript and oil paintings for the second book in the Aberat series titled Aberat Days of Magic Nights of War, which would be published the next year in 2004. Clive also mentioned how his best friend, David Dodds, was the only one to have read the manuscript thus far. Hmm. Abrat, Days of Magic, Nights of War, takes place several weeks after the first book ends. Candy is back, and she and her companions must solve the mystery of her past before the forces of night and day clash and absolute midnight descends upon the islands of Abrat. In the same interview with the Stokes, Clive mentions how he had been, as of late, going easier on himself and his work schedule. Willfully slowing down, you could say. In 2003, Clive had just turned 51, and concerned by his father's and great-grandfather's early deaths at 70 and 60, he wanted to make sure he was around longer than they were. Quote, the males of the family don't do so well, unquote. Oh, no. Yeah. Slowing down was not only was not the only thing that changed for Clive in the early 2000s. He mentions in the same interview how many of his ideologies had changed. According to Barker, just about everything about me has changed and I suppose will continue to change. And I think that one of the things that you hope for as an artist is change because you want, in a way slough off a skin every five years so that the voice that you're speaking with is not the voice that you were speaking with five years ago or 10 years ago. Otherwise, I think there's a danger. 
2003 would also be the year that Clive would become less visible to the public, claiming that his desire to leave the home had dwindled immensely. Quote, I leave the house very seldom. Everything I need is here. My husband is here. My best friend David is here. My animals are here. My daughter is here. The means to write and paint and see movies is here. Ah, relatable. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Clive and his husband, David Armstrong, collaborated on a book together called Rare Flesh, a coffee table book combining Armstrong's photographs of nude males and Clive's provocative poetry and prose. With the release of Days of Magic, Nights of War in 2004, Clive would go on tour speaking to readers and fans and signing books. This tour would be better than the last for the first Aberat. On this tour, Clive would meet new fans and young fans, kids. With the Aberat series, Clive was reaching out to a new generation, which made this tour much more satisfying. This tour also included some live painting demonstrations, including one at the West Hollywood Book Fair and one in Chicago. 2005 would be the year of starting, but not necessarily finishing, many projects. In another interview with the Stokes in June of 2005, Clive mentioned how he would wake up every morning and say to himself, okay, now which one of the seven things shall I do today? (laughs) Oh my God. It would also be the year that he would mentor a young man that he would think of as a son. According to Clive, in a 2010 interview for Total Film, Five years ago, a woman called Heidi Brown called me out of the blue and said, Please help me. My son, Justin, is a huge fan of yours, and he's in Iraq. He lied to get into the army. He got in when he was only 17. Please call him. He is going to die. Oh, no. I mentored him, and Heidi said that it was okay for him to be my son. Whoa. Clive's short story, The Midnight Meat Train, was set to become a feature-length film with Barker writing the screenplay. However, the original director left the production, so the film was picked up by Japanese horror and action director Ryuhei Kitamura, with the screenplay now being written by a man named Jeff Buller. Clive was also writing the third Aberat book, but it wouldn't be published for another six years. He was also feeling the pressure to finish the art series as well as the Scarlet Gospels, his sequel to The Hellbound Heart. He did continue to paint, however, and premiered his work in multiple gallery exhibitions in 2005 and in 2006. In 2007, Clive would publish the novella Mr. Be Gone. According to Goodreads.com, the Mr. B of the title is Jacobob Botch, a demon whose ghastly past could make even the most merciless sociopath whimper in sympathy. Born in the deepest regions of hell, the spawn of an abusive drunkard and his whorish wife, Jacobob escapes to the world above after suffering fiendish torture. Once topside, he lands conveniently in 15th century Mainz, the home of printing inventor Johannes Gutenberg. However, Mr. B isn't interested in merely observing history. Like any other self-respecting diabolical being, he's just searching for a new demonic angle. 
Clive Barker's Jericho, a first-person shooter survival horror game, was also released in 2007 for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360. Jericho's gameplay consists of leading a seven-man team, codenamed Jericho, allowing control of all team members by jumping to each character during certain points in the game through various environments that have been warped by the Firstborn, God's bastard children who came before Adam and Eve while fighting off a variety of other twisted creatures. On August 1st, 2008, The Midnight Meat Train was released into theaters. The film follows the plot of the original short story pretty accurately. Leon, played by Bradley Cooper, is a photographer who attempts to track down a serial killer dubbed The Subway Butcher, but discovers more than he bargained for under the city streets. The film received average to kind reviews, with horror fans calling it the best Clive Barker film since 1987's Hellraiser. In 2009, a film version of Barker's short story Dread was released into theaters. The plot, which the film closely follows, is about a quiet psychopath named Quaid, who is trying to understand his and others' feelings of dread. He begins his study as a project for college, but it soon turns strange when he kidnaps a vegetarian woman and starves her almost to death. One day, he leaves her a piece of meat, which she doesn't touch at first. Eventually, the woman overcomes her childhood fear of flesh and eats the meat, even though it has spoiled. Ugh. Confident that he can cure others, Quaid gets his friend Steve to overcome his childhood fear of deafness by temporarily removing his sense of hearing. Driven insane by the process, Steve attacks Quaid and kills him with an axe. Turns out that Quaid's childhood fear was that he would one day be murdered by an axe man. Oh no. Ironic. Ah. <laughs> Barker, who has been a vegetarian for years, felt that the fear of eating meat was a rational one. In a February 2010 interview for Bizarre Magazine, he claimed that his favorite horror movie was a short documentary called Blood of the Beasts. The film, directed by Eyes Without a Face director George Franjou, is about how animals are treated and killed in slaughterhouses. Clive Barker says, as a veggie, I say, God bless him for making this documentary. <laughs> for reasons we could not accurately determine, Clive and David Armstrong ended their 13-year relationship in 2009. When exactly their relationship ended, we are not sure of either. The breakup was apparently not pleasant and filled with anger and bitterness. According to Courthouse News, on April 21, 2009, the law firm Tropio & Morian, who was representing Clive, served Armstrong with a restraining order, and he was apparently escorted off Barker's Beverly Hills estate by an armed security guard. Soon after the breakup, Clive began dating a man named John Raymond Jr., and as of this recording, the two of them are still together. In the winter of 2009, Clive revealed in a Total Film interview that Justin, the young man he had been mentoring in film and art for the last five years, had died of an accidental drug overdose. He was 23, Clive said, and an extraordinary human being. His uniform hangs in my office. On September 27, 2011, the third book in the Aberrat series was finally published, Absolute Midnight. 
The book continues the adventures of young Candy and her friends on the magical islands of Aberat. With villains resurrected and morphed by the old mother of darkness herself, Mater Motley, at the heart of the ruthless scheme. Aberat is in danger of being destroyed forever, but not if Candy can help it. As of this January 2019 recording, the last two books, Cry Rising and Until the End of Time, have yet to be published. On January 10th, 2012, Clive Barker was suddenly rushed to the hospital. He was in a fight for his life. Two months later, he explained what happened to him in an interview with his friends Phil and Sarah Stokes. Quote, I had a four o'clock appointment with the dentist. It was exploratory to see what they wanted to do. It wasn't anything. There was a little bit of bleeding. There was some blood. So obviously they pierced something. I got home. I didn't feel great. A bit woozy. Then I have no memory of anything. I have no memory of anything until 12 days later, fighting to pull the tubes out of my throat. I had three tubes down into my lungs to inflate them and keep them going because my system had completely turned off. Now a doctor is saying to me, this is the third time you've done this. If you do it a fourth time, you will die. And I was terrified. I didn't know who these people were. They wore masks and it felt like I was being tortured. No. I kept trying to ask why, but couldn't because of the tubes in my throat. It was horrible. Let me tell you, it was horrible. There was nothing about it that was revealing or insightful or pleasant. It was a nightmare. Unquote. Gross. Apparently, Clive had suffered from toxic shock syndrome, or TSS, which is a rare, life-threatening complication of certain types of bacterial infections. The healing process would be a slow one. Not only was Clive dealing with his TSS recovery, but he had also recently had multiple surgeries on his throat due to polyps. Years and years of religiously smoking cigars had made his gentle Liverpudlian voice raspy. Aww. Don't smoke, kids. Nah, don't. His ex, David Armstrong, wasn't helping with Clive's multiple recoveries either. In June of 2012, David claimed that Clive had infected him with HIV and that he was suing his ex-boyfriend. According to David, in November of 96, Barker told him that he was HIV positive and Armstrong tested positive soon after. The exposure, David says, was a result of Barker's risky lifestyle and that Clive had had sex with his gay cousin Mark. Yep, the one we mentioned earlier in this episode who had died tragically of AIDS. Oh no. In December 2012, Clive Barker was victorious in the lawsuit when it was dismissed by a judge who found the claims baseless. Apparently, the judge had asked David Armstrong to provide the court with evidence, but he could not. So the case was permanently dismissed. What a, what a weird thing. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> Throughout 2013, Clive remained extremely private and rarely left his home, let alone his bed. It would be a while before he would make another public appearance. By 2014, the final draft of the Hellbound Heart sequel, The Scarlet Gospels, was waiting for publication. Clive was busy at work on, a, on the fourth installment of the Abrat series. He had not yet started writing it, but he let his friends Phil and Sarah know that the illustrations were almost finished. 
He also began to structure the plot for the third book in the art series, saying that it still had a while to go because it was going to have a massive narrative. However, Clive was still recovering from this terrible coma. In a summer 2014 interview with Phil and Sarah Stokes, Clive said to them, quote, I've been two and a quarter years out of my coma and I'm still not well. I'm getting there, but I'm still not well. And so it slows things down a little bit. But I think you'd be proud of me. I've done about 200 paintings in the last six months. Oh my God. But I haven't been able to do oil paintings because I can't stand up. So I've lost a little time, no question. But I'm trying very much to keep my nose to the grindstone, even though sometimes it's a bit depressing because I don't feel well. I am determined. Aww. In May of 2015, the long-awaited The Scarlet Gospels novel was published. Readers, readers soon discovered that not only was it a continuation of The Hellbound Heart, but also the short story The Last Illusion. Private detective Harry D'Amour from The Last Illusion travels to the home of a recently deceased magician who hired him via a medium in order to destroy evidence of his occult activities before his family can discover them. Oh. Harry soon learns that the assignment was a trap set by the Hell Priest, aka Pinhead, to kill him. In order to eliminate Harry as a potential obstacle in completing his terrible mission. Oh dear. The novel was a hit among Barker fans, even though he kills off his most iconic character, Pinhead. On the death of Pinhead, Barker is quoted as saying, The book is a way for me to say to many of the people who made very bad Hellraiser movies, and some of the people who acted in them, get out of my way. <laughs> you know? If I'd been sly about this and not even mentioning the fact that Pinhead, excuse me, the Hell Priest, was going to die, <laughs> that would have seemed really dumb. It's actually a really important element of the book, the element of the book which will draw the most attention. He will not be coming back, by the way. That I promise you. Unquote. Clive had finally killed his Frankenstein monster, and he was dead for good. After almost a year-long hiatus, Clive reassured his public that he was doing okay in another Stokes interview in September of 2017. Quote, I am better than I was. It's taken three years for me to get better, but I am getting better. I can't get to people right now, but I don't want them to think I've gone anywhere. I want to be able to talk at conventions and things like that and not have people worry about me because these are nice folks and they do worry about me. The thing I would love to let everyone know is that I'm working hard and that even though I'm not as public as I was, it means zero in terms of my commitment to the work which remains as strong, as you both know, as it ever was. Physically, I'm not at present able to paint the big paintings, but I'll get there. And in the meantime, yeah, there's, liter there's literary stuff going on. Aberrant 4 is almost finished, and Aberrant 5 has been plotted. As of June... 2018, the Sci-Fi Channel has been working on a new TV series based on Barker's book Cabal and the film Nightbreed. In an interview with ne Nellie Andreva for Deadline Hollywood, Barker is quoted as saying, This story has been near to my heart for many years. I'm beyond thrilled that Sci-Fi and UCP are taking this journey with us, and I cannot wait to see it brought to life on the screen. 
In September 2018, it was speculated that Jordan Peele, the director of Get Out, and the upcoming film Us, would direct a remake to Barker's Candyman. In November of that same year, the official news was released. Peele would produce and write the screenplay, while director Nia DaCosta would direct the spiritual sequel to the original Candyman. The new film is set to release in June of 2020. Ooh, I can't wait. Before we end this episode, I'd like to share a final quote by Barker from his interview with Famous Monsters of Filmland in October of 2017. He says, quote, I frequently find myself lamenting the fact that my fantasy novels, Weave World, Animagica, and The Thief of Always, are less known than Hellraiser. These are stories of hope, stories that will make people feel something besides dread. There is already too, so much dread in the world, and I enjoy giving people art that focuses on beauty. That is not to say that I actually lament Hellraiser being so popular. People love it, and I am eternally grateful for that. I am a working-class kid from Liverpool, the son of a dock worker. The fact that I get to tell stories of any kind, the fact that I get to give people some joy in their lives, whether that is in the form of horror in Hellraiser or the beauty of Aberat, to inspire people to tell their own stories, it's far more than I could have ever asked for. So, do I lament the fact that Hellraiser is the primary focus of all my work? Sure. But then I actually examine the feeling and realize it's preposterous. Hellraiser is a household name, and my other work is available to anyone who desires it. I am unbelievably fortunate. Unquote. That's so great. Yeah. Well, I feel as though every generation is blessed with an icon or two that really encapsulates what it is to love what horror and fantasy is trying to say. Right. Like what it represents about humanity, love, survival, and imagination. Clive Barker gifted us with such incredible additions to the genre that it's hard not to love everything about him. He's the perfect blend of grace and absolute terror. And while his work is literally the stuff of nightmares, it allows us to explore our own personal taboos and address our darkest fears in a way that opens up our mind to new terrors and solutions alike. His contributions to horror have inspired generations of artists to come while giving hope to those who have experienced hardships and who continue to fight for recognition and validation to this day. Whether challenging horror norms with his work in Hellraiser or speaking about his art and how it relates to his personal triumphs and struggles, Clive's incredible vision has transcended the typical tropes of our beloved genre to produce something spectacular. Yes, Hellraiser is a household name, and in the shadows and imagery of those fever dream worlds, Clive Barker stands alone as a unique force and a creator of nightmares and heroes. Love it. Yeah. Well, you guys, thank you all so much for listening to this very special episode of Good Morning Nancy about one of our favorites, Clive Barker. Now, I'm going to make this announcement. Um, I'm going to be moving soon, so I'm going to be very, very busy. Yes. Um, So we're not going to have any coffee breaks for the rest of January, and we might not have any in February as well. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see where we are. I haven't figured out how busy I'm going to be yet. Yeah. (laughs) So we will still have full-length episodes every other Tuesday, and there is going to be a full-length episode next week. Um, Until then, don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got mugs and sweatshirts 
sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Go to goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and you will be taken to our shop. Yeah, and if you'd like some sweet extra content in your coffee, head on over to patreon.com goodmorningnancy. And for just a few bucks a month, you can listen to some bloopers from our show and watch us review new horror movies and so much more. And don't forget to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. It takes just a few minutes to rate and review our show, and it really helps us receive recognition, and it helps new listeners interested in horror find us. You can also help us out by following us on social media, Twitter at GoodMorningNan, Facebook at GoodMorningNancy, and Instagram at GoodMorningNancyPodcast. Also, tell a friend and spread the word. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.